Hello, I'm Dr. Frank Gomez, and this is All Things STEM. Today, I speak with Dr. Emma Sanchez, Professor of Public Health at San Francisco State University. She is a social epidemiologist whose research focuses on racial, ethnic, and socioeconomic disparities in health and impact of policies and environments on health and disparities with a focus on obesity, maternal and child health, food, physical education policies, and neighborhood conditions. Today, we will discuss the impact of some of these policies among the most vulnerable populations within our communities, children. Emma, it's great to have you. How's the weather up there? Thank you for having me. It's great. It's very sunny outside today in San Francisco. Great. I love the Bay Area. It's like one of my most favorite places to visit, uh, although it's probably too expensive for me to actually live there. <laughs> you have a very, very interesting background and I think certainly has played a key role in your current academic focus. Tell us a little bit about how that has influenced you, you know, as you grew up and how it's made you an, an advocate for the most vulnerable populations. And uh, I can tell uh, having you know, read a lot of things from you that you really have a passion for this. Yes. Um, so my parents, uh, my schools and the place where I grew up uh, significantly influenced uh, my work and who I am today. For my parents, uh, education was very important. And my father, who lived in Mexico all of his life, uh, he yearned for economic justice. My mother was a feminist and uh, she wanted my siblings and I to um, have the best education tools to become economically independent, especially her daughters. Uh, my mom really believed that women should not be financially dependent on their parents. So she uh, promoted the value of education for all of us. I uh, grew up in one of the border areas between Mexico and the United States. So I saw and lived the complexities, the disadvantages, and also the benefits of living in each country. When you live in the border, you know many people, both in your family and your community, your parents, brothers, cousins, neighbors, uncles, who cross both sides of the border uh, to either go to school, to work, uh, go shopping, visit friends, and all of the above. The experiences uh, crossing the border over the United States can be dramatically different and depend on one's level of education, uh, language abilities, uh, physical appearance, the color of your skin, and of course, types of documentation. So all of these pieces gave me a rich um, repertoire of social, economic, and cultural experiences that inform my work as professor and researcher today. You know, one thing you bring up, uh, and certainly it's a, uh, an integral part of my role here in the CSU, is, uh, yes, I do meet a lot of feminists at, at the chancellor's office while chatting with a lot of faculty uh, throughout the system. And it certainly has been uh, an eye-opener, uh, both in terms of um, their, their lived experiences and how it has carried through in terms of what they focus on going forward uh, in terms of research. I saw a little bit in your bio that in the 1990s, you uh, did a little bit of work on case management for a mission-based migrant family center, uh, which I'm sure played some role 
in what you're currently working on uh, right now. Tell us a little bit about your experience with the center and how it's played a role in your current work as a public health professor at SF State. Definitely. Um, the work at the center was quite rewarding. Um, I was able to use my bilingual skills and background to help uh, people have better lives. Uh, the work was also very challenging because housing is very expensive in San Francisco, as you noted. Um, wages were not that great and immigration policies created a hostile environment for families and their children. So I realized that uh, these factors were structural and that my ability to make a difference was very limited, uh, no matter how many hours I worked. So during this time, I met a professor, Zoe Clayson from San Francisco State University, who was helping the center to conduct a client satisfaction survey. It was all in Spanish, so I got involved to help with translation back to English. Um, and through this experience, I formally entered the world of research. I was simultaneously working on my bachelor's degree at the University of San Francisco. So the client satisfaction survey became a data set I could simultaneously work with while addressing the needs of the center. After I finished my bachelor's degree, Professor Clayson offered me a job to work with her and Dr. Mary Beth Love, the chair of my current department at that time. And once at San Francisco State, I decided to enroll in a master's of public health program. I was very attracted to public health because in this field, we focus on the health of the public. And the public can be large portions of the population. So there are many opportunities to make an impact at a large scale. And in the master's degree, I learned about the effects of poverty on health and how poverty and wealth create health inequalities. I learned there was a whole science about the kinds of things I saw at the center and when I was growing up at the border. So I became very passionate about these topics and decided to pursue a doctoral degree in social epidemiology. I was very fortunate to have Dr. Clayson and Dr. Love as mentors. They prepared me and supported me to apply for doctoral programs. And with their guidance and my work, I earned admission to Harvard School of Public Health. Then shortly after, I came back to San Francisco State to teach. Great story. Um, and it seems like you've you certainly participated in, uh, uh, with a lot of communities of need. And certainly a lot of those communities of need and their needs have been exacerbated because of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, which has really brought a lot of things to the forefront these past two years. As you probably know, and I don't have to tell you, you know, all these things are, are so related to each other. Communities of need, health, uh, education, housing, et cetera. And they really impact those that are, are the, uh, the marginalized uh, in, in our societies. What are some of the social determinants that impact uh, the communities and the communities you've worked with and the health of those that, uh, that live there? The social determinants are social circumstances in which people are born, um, play, work, and live at home, at work and schools and neighborhoods. 
And this includes the resources available in all of these places. Socioeconomic resources, however, can influence all of these uh, conditions. And we know from many years of research that involve different people at different times and places that socioeconomic factors are strongly uh, related to physical health. Time and again, uh, the data shows that the more socioeconomic resources people have, the better their health tends to be, and the reverse also applies. The less resources, the worse health, although this is not always the case and the relationships can, can vary and are, um, uh, can be dynamic. People who earn lower employment wages are often more likely to live in poor neighborhoods. In turn, poor neighborhoods tend to have less resources to help us stay healthy because these neighborhoods often lack the nutritious foods and resources for physical activity like safe parks and recreational facilities. And of course, not everyone who has lower wages will have poor health. Other factors like social support and medical care can play a role. But we know that these factors alone are insufficient to improve the nation's health. There's plenty of room to improve the ways in which we organize our society to ensure that our schools, homes, and neighborhoods are places that support our health and longevity. And when we talk about those populations that are most affected, certainly the ones that, uh, that are most vulnerable are the children in our communities. We only need to look at the, uh, the sad pictures of the current war out in Ukraine to see uh, the children that are most affected and the ones that, are, that will probably have the long-term trauma if they do remember uh, having gone through the sadness uh, of this war. You know, kind of transitioning a little bit, and uh, a lot of this hits, hits home because I knew some of the legislative people who were involved in uh, some of these nutrition laws. You wrote an article, you're a co-author of an article on school nutrition laws in the U.S., uh, how do they influence obesity among youth in a racial, technically diverse state? I mean, I remember having grown up as a little kid and there was, even though I didn't drink soda, there was soda, there was candy, there were Twinkies, there were all these things that you can just eat at any time for, you know, for lunch and what have you. And then there was this, as I got older and no longer in, in K through 12, uh, I was on a school board. And I remember that there was a shift from all that type of junk food to more healthy types of food. But you were right in there in participating in, in enacting these laws eventually in California. Tell us a little bit about your study, you know, some of the findings, uh, what were the communities uh, most impacted, and how your research I mean, this is real academic research. It really had an impact on our schools and our children. Tell us a little bit about it. Yes, actually, during that time, I was just like recently arriving to San Francisco State. There were a, a couple of years that I had been doing my research and I was looking for um, topics and studies that could uh, help inform 
um, programs and policies. And, and this policy was uh, very uh, unique in that it was one of the, California was one of the first to implement some of these policies. And so our hypothesis was that the law would help to curb the childhood obesity epidemic in the state. And so we used um, statewide data from California from students in fifth and seventh grades. And we calculated the percentage of children with obesity and compared that in the periods before and after the policies took place. We found that before the policies took place, the percentage of children with obesity went up. However, after the policies took effect, the percentage of children grew at a slower pace, stopped going up or went down. Unfortunately, we also saw that the percentage of children with obesity was much higher among Latinos and African-Americans, especially girls, uh, compared with their white peers, and that these disparities were growing in the period prior to the policies. Uh, the good news is that we also learned that for Latino children and African-American girls, the impact of these policies was a little bit stronger. And because of that, uh, the data suggests that policies, that these policies may have helped to uh, stop the increase in obesity disparities. Our research has some limitations. However, uh, research from other scientists support the possibility that these policies favorably influence children's body weight. Um, for example, many studies have shown that the policies similar to those enacted in California have improved the school food environments and um, the quality of the food that students consume in those schools. Following up on this, was there any type of study that saw how this change in their school habits had any impact on their home eating habits? Because that would be an interesting one to see if there was carryover going forward. Do you know of any type of study? That's a good question. I think the science is not, um, has not expanded to that front yet, as far as I'm familiar with that. I think that there is, of course, recognition that uh, home environments also have a, a role in children's diets and um, body weight. The thing is that it's a little bit difficult to study the one environment itself, just as schools, is, is, it has a lot of uh, uh, challenges. And I think combining them, it's, it's a little bit harder, but of course, that it's doable. And I'm sure with some creativity and um, good data that could be done. But I, but I agree with you that it's an important question that, um, that deserves study. So, so in addition to these school nutrition laws, which other kind of kind of looking into the future, uh, what other types of health policies have been implemented or, and or which are effective in preventing childhood obesity? Have there been follow-up types of laws going forward? And have they been local, state, and or federal, kind of a mixed bag of them? Well, there is growing evidence, including uh, research from our group that I co-lead with uh, Dr. Bisa Sanchez, who is a professor from Drexel University, 
that both states and federal policies to regulate nutrition quality um, in schools are associated with higher quality diets. Um, the federal policies for school meals appear to have uh, to affect body weight, particularly among children with less socioeconomic resources. And our work also has shown that policies that regulate physical education in schools uh, are associated with children's fitness, which affects uh, overall health and cardiovascular health. And I think it is important to remember that um, these uh, so-called obesity prevention policies can affect body weight, but also a wide range of um, other health outcomes, um, including behaviors that are related to good health. I recently read an article, and it does have overlap to what we're talking about here, on how in inner cities, and this was an LA Times article, on how not having enough playground space for children to play, uh, and I'm not talking about for them, say, for example, to play volleyball or basketball, but not having sufficient grass uh, sandboxes, uh, places to play baseball, you know, soccer, for example, is actually an aspect of social injustice. You know, I kind of think of it this way also in terms of the the ability to have access to to good food too, um, which really is not having sufficient funding and resources for students to have access to you know, the difference between oranges and apples and Twinkies and ding-dongs, okay? So uh, what if some of these communities don't have the sufficient funding and resource to implement these health policies, may they be local, state, or federal? Um, what do you do then? Have you seen this happen? And, you know, what might you think would be the next steps so that these health policies could then be implemented? Yeah, that's a very important point. Um, there's a theory by some scholars that um, universal policies have the potential to maintain and even increase disparities and injustices because the more affluent populations um, benefit equally or better than those with less resources. Um, the federal policy uh, for school meals was designed to address socioeconomic disparities in nutrition, uh, given that you know, the school meals programs targeted low-income children. Um, however, more recently, we have started moving um, toward universal school meals because of concerns about stigma. The jury is still out as to effects of these changes. But to your second question, I think that we need to improve both nutrition and physical activity environments everywhere that children grow, go to school and play. And we need both universal policies as well as policies that support children with less resources so we can give all children a fair chance to grow healthy. One entity we haven't focused on is what is the, uh, and not laying blame on, on any one group, what is the role of the food industry in, in all of this? Tell us a little bit about, uh, I don't know, about their angle. Uh, certainly it's profits. 
but how is it that that government, people, how can we have some sort of more say? Uh, and, and and how could these policies, may they be, you know, local, uh, state, or federal, somehow work in tandem so that everybody's on the same page, so that the these communities that are being affected by what children eat and drink are not as affected, uh, thereby, you know, increasing this health disparity and especially among marginalized populations. I think uh, uh, obesity, uh, the growing obesity epidemic has shown us that um, this is a multi-factorial, multi-sector issue. And of course, I agree with you that all of these sectors need to be involved in helping to promote um, healthy body weight. And so, for example, transportation policies and uh, zoning laws. Some time ago, there was a, a zoning law, I think in LA or near LA, that um, placed a mor- moratorium on the number of um, fast food outlets that could be built near schools. Unfortunately, I don't think there has been enough studies that uh, have looked at the effects of that. But there is increasingly um, uh, many studies have found that the availability of fast food restaurants um, near schools is related to um, body weight and and that there are some disparities in, in the availability of these outlets near schools. So I think that there is some room for improvement in that area as well. And certainly same thing with like liquor stores and related types of uh, entities like that. It just becomes more difficult when, you know, so many cities are space constrained, um, housing constrained, uh, you know, where to build schools, let alone where to build, you know, open space parks uh, and things like that. You know, would we, you know, it's like building up, but who wants to live in, you know, in 10 story types of enclaves? We've, we've kind of seen them on TV, uh, as, you know, some places like in New York City where they have these, you know, people living in, you know, 10, 15 story places and they don't look very accommodating, uh, you know, to people, to anybody who's watching them um, on TV, what have you. Why is it so important right now, and more so now, uh, to tackle childhood uh, obesity? Give us your kind of bird's eye view. Well, we know that um, children living with obesity are more likely to live with obesity as adults. Uh, We also know that obesity is related to multiple chronic diseases, including um, diabetes and heart disease. And uh, as you mentioned earlier at the beginning of the episodes, in the early um, stages of the pandemic and before vaccines, uh, we learned that obesity and diabetes were strong and significant risk factors for mortality from COVID-19. So the epidemic showed us very powerfully that chronic and, de- and infectious diseases can commingle in very uh, deadly ways. And so if we tackle the childhood obesity epidemic, 
now we can predict to have a healthier adult population, better able to work and to be productive and contribute across all sectors of our society, including in healthcare and national security, the economy and technology. And children of color uh, are growing uh, are a growing section of the population, so they will contribute significantly to the future population health of the nation. So this is why it is, uh, it is especially important to reduce obesity in these groups now. Well, Emma, all of your work is fascinating. It certainly shows how we're all connected in some way. Obesity, what we eat, where we live, housing, uh, transportation, uh, genetics, where we go to school. Uh, it isn't a uh, single variable in terms of the research. It's complex. It's, it's multivariate. And, you know, my, uh, my hat's off to you and people who do this type of work in trying to tease out the effects of one variable, given that there's so many of them uh, all playing a role uh, at one time. It's complex. Uh, and uh, it's not like you have two or three variables. You have so many of them when you're dealing with people. And with that being said, if you can look back just a few years ago, okay, if you could turn back the hands of time and talk to your 18-year-old self, what would you tell her? That's, that's a tough question. <laughs> uh, I, I guess I would tell her that Life has many twists and turns, and each of these will offer uh, something new and meaningful. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Frank, for having me. Well, that's all for today's episode of All Things STEM. Thank you for listening, and many thanks to Dr. Emma Sanchez for joining me today. Join us again next time. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on Simplecast, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you may listen to your podcast. Until next time.